everything is speed sensitive at the same time. So you, you might be trying to optimize around a team pursuit that the Olympics are going to ride at 70 kilometers an hour. So you figure out their Reynolds number and then you realize, yeah, we can't aero test at that speed. How do you replicate that meaningfully? And if you were to go into the wind tunnel, you, you can't ride at 700 watts in the correct position in the wind tunnel, pedaling the right cadence, et cetera, because the dynamics are different, not least when you then start to think about the fact that your angles and pitch angles aren't the same in a wind tunnel as they are in a velodrome. And you've got all these compounding factors that I guess frustrate engineers. And then someone just goes, but does it matter? And in some cases, yes. In some cases, no, is the frustrating thing that yes, we found some good gains on some athletes and on others not so. Well, hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. So episode 94, um, we've been doing this for three and a half years now. So we've been chugging along. I'll be getting close to that 100 episode mark. Not quite sure what we'll do. Um, We're thinking at the moment that we'll probably get to 100 or possibly even stop at 99 and just be annoying. And maybe take a pause and it'd be great to hear from you as to what your reflections are, uh, what we could do differently. We're going to take a little bit of time just to collect our thoughts about whether we kick on and and go again. So a few more great episodes to to come in which we'll be exploring different aspects of high performance from researchers, from people who've been there and done it, people who have, have pioneered in the area. But I hope you're enjoying the conversations. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening and supporting as we go. Let me introduce you to this week's guest, Dan Bigham. He's a special person who has got special skills in numerous areas. Dan is a cycling athlete of the highest order, principally in the disciplines of individual and team pursuit, although he's just recently had a pop at Bradley Wiggins' hour record too. But Dan has achieved this level of performance with a band of brothers who congregated together and applied their collective physical talents with a mindset of simply trying to work performance out. And he was sort of doing this without a system behind him, really. They were just trying to hack it, trying to work it out. Dan is an engineer by training and spent numerous years working in motorsports and sports analytics using his big brain and his curious mindset to ask questions, explore, be willing to go off script in the pursuit of performance. Dan's recent book, Start at the End, tells the story of how he led this team to success using the principles of reverse engineering performance. And you'll hear Dan get into some of the technical details of aerodynamics and drag and so on. But you'll also hear how this attitude has spilled, or you could simply say has been applied to all aspects of personal and team performance. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dan. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be on. As I was saying before, it's, you've been a bit of a hero of mine throughout sports science the past few years. So it's, yeah, it's great to chat. And how about yourself? How are you doing? Oh, yeah, really good. Really good. Um, I think I've, I've probably got four years practice now of the summers being quieter now that I'm independent. Um, so before that, it was 21 years worth of summers being really busy and f- frenetic. So um, I'm just getting used to it quietening at this time. So, yeah, all good. 
All right. So um, I want to I want to dive into a load of um, different ideas, particularly uh, based around your book around engineering and what for me going through it actually bordered on sort of social dynamics and uh, engineering engineering how we live as much as anything. But uh, first question up is how's the washing up ability going? <laughs> um, I'd still not improved to realize too much. It's been low down on the focus. It's been out of my top five items on the to-do list, so it's not received quite as much attention as it as it probably should. But I'm quite lucky. Um, we have a good dishwasher, and that's that's featured heavily since we moved out of the team house. So doing well off that. All right. So for context, there, I love the the top trumps idea that you explore in the in the book and um that idea of of simple profiling and maybe we can get into the um can you can you just give us a bit of a background um uh, for people who might not know you could you just sort of give us a, a a bit of a history to where you've where you've come from and i guess your journey as much as anything sure i'll, I'll try and summarize as quickly as i can because we're going into a lot of detail in different areas but uh my background is is motorsport engineering i studied uh undergrad and masters at, at oxford books i always wanted to be in formula one that was the dream as a kid i competed in multiple different motorsport disciplines uh and just enjoyed the combination of maths engineering competition it all kind of tied in nicely uh i did a, a placement year at mercedes amg patronus in the f1 team so i was in the aero department there uh, back in 2012-2013, so the Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg era, and kind of figured out there that I didn't want to work in Formula One, which is this weird uh, watershed moment that I actually enjoyed my own sport and doing my own thing more than giving up literally your life and soul to it. It's not that that's necessarily required, but I feel like it's somewhat expected, or at least people present that within Formula One, that early starts, late nights, weekends, night shifts, all that kind of stuff is kind of the status quo there. And some people love it. And at my time there, I did. But I also saw that I couldn't do that for the next 10, 20, 30 years. I, there's so many other things going on in my life that I enjoyed. So at the time, my, my cycling and my sport was progressing. I'd started up triathlon. Uh, as a kid, I'd played every sport under the sun and never committed, uh, which I think was probably a blessing in disguise. My parents weren't pushy. They just said, tell us what sports you want to do. And yeah, tennis, football, rugby, squash, swimming, the whole lot. Uh, yeah. Um, so while I was there at Mercedes, I met a guy called Simon Smart, who is quite well, quite um, renowned, I think, within cycle sport. He was one of the pioneers of aerodynamics and clothing and wheels and bike design. And he kind of pushed me more towards cycle sport aero as opposed to motorsport aero. And I loved it. It was this kind of tying together of my passion in in sport and what I was studying in in engineering. So went back to uni, finished up my my master's and managed to twist the arm of my lecturers to kind of try and take motorsport engineering projects and make them cycle sport relevant. So things like lap time simulators became cycle sport lap time simulators for time trial courses and things like that. So it kind of, yeah, grew my passion even further. I was very lucky that my aero lecturer was a a GB cyclocross rider. So he was pretty happy to... (laughs) indulge me in that uh so finished up at uni and actually ended up working for a sports consultancy called pace insights with samira b who you might have mm, come across yeah and i was there for about six months working with a number of different olympic teams british athletics was my primary focus but with british equestrian swimming uh kind of all over the place with a lot of different basically practical applications of engineering within sport which is exactly what I was enjoying doing and it, it made a lot of sense. However, at the same time as me doing this, my cycling was starting to become a bigger part of my life. I was progressing as an athlete. I was 
achieving good results uh, domestically. I, I think, yeah, that would, that would be 2015 heading 2016. So I was, I'd say, pretty competitive, sort of getting around some of the national level races uh, and just becoming more, I guess, uh, competitive at a good level. And I kind of thought, well, what, why I'm, I'm helping all these other athletes to, to be competitive internationally. And I want the same kind of thing for myself. And at the time, I kind of made the, the leap of multiple different respects. I, I left Pace Insights. I set my own company up, Watch Shop. So I was sort of doing a combination of um, component design and development, uh, consultancy for others, aerodynamic testing, that kind of thing, to basically take me to races and then to actually race myself and moved up throughout the the echelons domestically uh, for an elite national road team. And then this nice um, opportunity came up after, I guess, six, seven months of that, where uh, the team at the time, I had a, a good friend, Charlie Tanfield, racing in, and he had been on the British Cycling Olympic Development Programme as a youth and then wanted to have a go at the individual pursuit of the National Track Champs, which I was pretty keen to have a go at myself. It was this beautifully clean scientific event where mm. it's all within your control and it's so easy to model and well you can go you can get make it very complex but it was at the time very simple so I was very keen to have a go and we trained together at Derby sort of late 2016 and at the time we thought well why not do a team pursuit we've got half a squad I'm sure we can find two more <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's where the the big story started of what became team KGF so I pulled in a friend Johnny Whale from Loughborough Uni who was just finishing up his degree uh, another friend, Jacob Tipper, who was, he came in a bit, I'd say kicking and screaming. He wasn't so keen. He, he saw it as a distraction from his training, but why not? It could be a, a national medal and he might never get one of those in his in his cycling career. So he came in and we had four weeks of preparation into the, the national championships, uh, which we took very seriously. Uh, it was this short, sweet opportunity to apply everything we'd all learned and understood of the sport to quite a top level event. And I was pretty confident from the outset that we could pretty much go in there and win everything. And I guess that's me. Sometimes I'm overconfident and tempered by Tipper, who is the exact opposite. His, his glass is more than half empty. <laughs> so uh, it's good to have that that balance uh, within the team. But yeah, we, we went into nationals having some things a little bit differently preparation and strategy wise on equipment about our own socks for example that have since become pretty popular with, with aero socks taking off pretty much across the entire sport and uh yeah myself and charlie we finished one two in the ip then i won the kilo on the second day we went in as these sort of underdog favorites into the team pursuit and uh qualified fastest and we're against the, the bc uh, under 23 academy in the final and pushed them all the way to the line and took the win by 0.4 of a second and the competition record at the same time and that was the big moment i guess we kind of announced ourselves and um wanted to progress and and yeah we were late to the game we weren't in this sort of under 23 can go on the program thing so we were left to our own devices really we didn't get any or much interest from from the national uh, governing body, British Cycling. So we, we went on our, our own way and set up as a trade team so we could go and race at World Cups. And that progressed. We went to our first World Cup season, had some bad results, and that progressed to some good results, and then finally winning one uh, late in the season. Then through to selection for the World Champs for Commonwealth Games. And it was this kind of big breakthrough season from being nobodies to, especially with Charlie, he was riding hands down the fastest IPs consistently around the world that year. Um, it was kind of a good result if you went below four minutes 20 for an IP. And he rode, I think every IP he did that year, of which there was about seven 
seven different competitions. So qualifying and finals, they were all 414 or faster. So he was right up there at the top. Uh, and yeah, we just had this, this awesome season. For me, it kind of ended on a low where I didn't really fit in with the GB system. I, I struggled and didn't really... Uh, didn't really fit for a number of reasons, and I'm sure we can can dive into that throughout, throughout this chat, um, mm. but went on my way a lot more motivated to do things the way I wanted to do them uh, and to apply my own thoughts and have control over my own destiny. And that, that twisted into what became Who What Bike. So from being a, a small little team, we suddenly have a lot of funding. I say a lot of funding. Our budget for an entire season was, we got it to £60,000 for that year, and that included all equipment, accommodation, training, travel, race entries a lot so as, as much as it for us was a lot of money in the grand scheme of things that was pretty much what a nation would spend on a single world cup um but money isn't everything you can do a lot more just using your head so we we went on that year and we pretty competitive across every world cup we we won our home one in london which was massive high for us uh, to have everybody sort of there all your sponsors and we, we'd come up with a nation Darbados because we didn't feel represented by DC so we had our own flag and we're flying the flag of Darbados around London Village Road. So is that is that a fusion yeah. of Derby and Barbados? Yeah exactly that. That, so should, got- that should be illegal that's not that's not allowed that's, <laughs> that's not a, a bedfellow. <laughs> well it is locally and to be honest most of our sponsors and partners were, were Derby based so for them it was this huge thing that they could shout and scream about and we had this great flag we got the flag of Derby or Derbyshire and uh, we had like the silk mill it's obviously synonymous with Derby we had the Rolls Royce engine a couple of yeah. palm trees on it so it's yeah it was pretty cool uh, and that grew through another season but then the world governing body decided that uh, they were going to ban trade teams so we were we were out on our asses, we, they literally were like, no, not interested. You're not welcome anymore. Just nations only. Uh, didn't consult us. The first I heard of it was from a major paper. Just give me a call on a Tuesday afternoon. Do you mind commenting on this press release from the UCI? It's like, I have no idea what you're on about. Can you send it through to me? Right. Uh, so they, they, they basically prevented you because you were su- successful or that you didn't kind of fit the mold where they haven't had it. I presume they haven't had that challenge before where someone just sort of rocks up of their own doing? Yeah, I, I think we we definitely rocked a few boats, uh, rattled a few cages, did things quite differently. We weren't structured like any normal team. We, we didn't have uh, this sort of management structure and coaches. It was literally, we did everything as riders. Uh, and I think there's a lot to be said for that, of, of empowerment and having the ability to control your own destiny and not have this coach-centric system where coach determines the the training you do, the strategy you ride, the races you go to. It was a case of, we know what we want to do. We've got all the, these ideas from, from our own studies and from our own life experiences that we want to apply um, and just see what comes out the other end. And as a team culture, we were probably quite different as well. We were very focused on, I guess, having good morale at all competitions and enjoying, enjoying it, really, enjoying the journey. We were in track centre blasting out Gwen Stefani and... <laughs> Those were the things that probably weren't so well received by by the, the sort of established system. Uh, and then, yeah, when you start beating them, then uh, I think it, it kind of hit home with them. And I don't know what happened behind the scenes. So we can obviously uh, assume and guess. But yeah, effectively, we, we didn't fit in with what they thought trade teams should be. So the short decision was, uh, yeah, simply banners and get rid of us, um, which then inspired the next step of, I guess, my career to, to move in and, Help the Danish team towards Tokyo. Can, so, can I just um, unpack a few different ideas there? Um, mm-hmm. That you sort of 
created this sort of serendipitous picture mm. of you just clubbed together and just had a bit of a ring round, and then <laughs> you you're beating the uh, perceived establishment, the British cycling infrastructure, and it's a juggernaut of of highly developed infrastructure and systems there. But could you could you pinpoint in that sort of those formative stages what you felt were enabling success criteria? That's a good question. So I think it's worth understanding the sport in its first instance. BC, especially British cycling, they they target the Olympics, and anything in between is experience or qualification. They're they're not there to bring out their their fancy kit every other week because why would they? They, they want a competitive advantage. Although that being said, the riders obviously still want to win. They're not going to turn up and and just boot around. So there were other nations who are much in in the same ilk of that. That it wasn't always their A team or in the best form. So that's maybe me caveating that we were turning up trying to uh, trying to win every round because why wouldn't we? That, that was what we wanted to do. We just wanted to, to go fast and win stuff. I think the reason, maybe it was serendipitous, but I think the composition of the team, especially in the first instance, had such a broad skill base and experience base as well. We weren't 16, 17, 18 year olds coming into this. We were 24, 25, 26. We've raced domestically. We've raced internationally. We've got undergrad and master's degrees. We've got a sports psycho- we've got a psychologist in Johnny. We've got a sports physiology with Tipper. Myself and Charlie are engineers. And I guess because we've all followed the sport so closely and quite critically at, at points as well, we, we saw where things we perceived were being done wrong. So whether it was how athletes were, were treated, how they were coached, how they were trained, how practitioners were involved and their ability to implement their ideas with athletes and I think that's something that most practitioners can probably or probably aware of that that they can have some great research and if they can't have impact with it then it feels like you've not made that big step to to high performance that you've got all this great stuff and it's it's wasting away Uh, and that was like one thing that we really jumped on that there's so many smart people and Johnny laughed and joked that smart people on Twitter want to tell you how smart they are but that's such a great place to find all this this great research and people like uh lewis goff with sodium bicarb supplementation we had medi with uh, a lot of stuff around uh critical power and his uh w prime uh steve fortner with a lot of thermal physiology uh kerberg and taylor came on board as well from the union helped on multiple different respects so there's there's just a lot of people that we kind of pulled in and took on this journey and said look you've got these awesome ideas and we just want to go fast and we want to go fast quickly. We don't care about the Olympics in two, three years time. That's, that's not for us as things currently stand, we're not going to go. So let's just try and be as, as quick as we can and use that, that knowledge to good effect. And I think that was, that was, I'd say fairly critical because you have these very intelligent people who understand the sport, but also see its flaws at the same time, come in and, and sort of have their input. And I think that, that helped us a huge amount in the first instance, because we were pretty raw. we, we had some great ideas, but actually trying to distill those down into what was beneficial was sometimes a bit a bit hard. And having someone who's maybe a bit more mature, a bit more experienced, I guess like a coach would be, uh, to come in and, and filter those a little bit was was helpful. Um, but those relationships evolved throughout the whole team to the point that sometimes it, it went the other way. And they were asking us for thoughts and guidance and advice on either their studies or the, the, the roles they got involved with with other teams so Medi was a great example he's now um, one of the coaches at the Dutch sprint team who are the reigning world champions world record holders and favourites for the, the team sprint gold in a matter of four or five days time 
Um, so hopefully, that, yeah, it probably gives a yeah. bit of an insight. It's probably not the only thing, but... And um, I don't want this to be necessarily about British cycling as such, because, you know, who can argue with the success that that, that system has had over the, the decades? But But why do you think that emerges in teams where there's a sense of, uh, I guess, reluctance to be embracing a lot of those ideas, that that rawness, the, the direct conversations that you might have with Medicordi or with Kurt Bergen-Taylor. Who, you know, though, why do you think there's a, a sense of, we've got a system, we're just, we're just going to keep it as it is? I hate to say it, but uh, you know, I have said it before that maybe they just got complacent. I, I do believe that their system was awesome. It was put simply class leading, world, world class when it when it started up, and they did some awesome things in the first two, even three Olympic cycles. But you need to, you can't just expect to continually crank the same handle and continue to progress at the same rate. At some point, things need to change because you will stagnate. Uh, and I recently read the book Who Moved My Cheese, and I found that quite analogous to the the situation that they they were doing the same thing they always did and suddenly expected to get the same results but the world was catching up and effectively the head start they had was they understood physics nothing more much more to that and then were inquisitive enough to to understand and apply that in all areas of of cycling performance and since then every other nation has when in that time they were probably focusing a lot more heavily on on the physiology on nutrition on everything on the energy inside of the equation and ignoring the energy outside of the equation. And then once that penny dropped or that's even Pandora's box, you could call it once that's opened, it, it can't be closed. And every other nation's suddenly aware that they can measure CDA, they can measure CRR, they can measure drivetrain efficiency, and they can do it really quite easily. And then suddenly you can go, Oh, what happens if I do this? And what happens if I do that? And I think these British cycling were the first through the door with that, but maybe stagnated on, processes they went through and how broad they were being in their investigations because things like um, positioning, rider positioning, the the benefits are are huge, literally huge. So you can take a rider in a very poor time trial position on the track, spend a day with them and you could find five seconds even more in an IP. And you think five seconds is years and years and years and years and years of training, but it takes just a whole lot of testing and knowing to go in the right direction and Sometimes as well, accepting that what a rider might say of like, oh, I don't think I can ride in this position or saying, oh, I think this might be a bit unstable if you go too narrow on your armrest and making those concessions and saying, well, actually, you might be a little bit unstable. That might cost you a little bit in distance, but you save significantly more in the aerodynamic side or you can train that back. And sometimes you've got to take those steps back to then move multiple steps forward. I think that was kind of another respect that, that we were quite happy to do of go, well, Okay, this not might be this might not be the most comfortable position, the most sustainable position, but it is the most aerodynamically efficient. And I know that once the CDA wins out, my aerodynamics don't respond to a stimulus. I can't just ride in a time trial position and get more aero. However, I can ride in a less efficient position, and my physiology will adapt to that over time. And I think that was uh, one of the big breakthroughs that that we went with of just do that and yeah in the first instance you make a, a step back in performance but over time you more than recover that and end up in a better situation and it's sometimes that hesitance to move away from a local optimum to find a global optimum elsewhere and that's quite hard to achieve in a system that wants confirmed improvements so you can't just do a test finish a test go to a meeting of all the practitioners and say okay this has made the rider slower by half a second over 4k they'll go what are you doing you go but oh they'll, they'll probably be faster in six months time but we don't know 
Yeah. Okay. There's a couple of really interesting concepts there. The the that one maybe I'll come back to there about being prepared to go backwards in the short term so that you're building something that is longer term effective. And it's something I've I've met a number of times in 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 supporting athletes. And I and I can understand the reluctance of a system. And certainly when you're coaching, I think there's there's a there's, there's that sense and need for uh, results. It's it's almost like the currency by which you're judged daily. And there's no sense of, you know, you see it in football all the time, you know, a couple of bad results and, and they're out, as opposed to, well, we're going to try and build something different. And over the next couple of months and years, it's going to be a bit rocky, but bear with us. And, and someone having the foresight to go, okay, <laughs> I get that. Um, but I, I think there's a naturally, I mean, I've encountered it dozens of times where a system, I suppose, becomes clo- more, more and more closed. They have this initial uh, spark and inspiration and those, those magical conversations that happen over a cup of coffee or a beer Whereas a couple of like-minded people, or as you say, some differences of of, uh, of personality and opinion that that spark and, and clash, but also progress. I remember the initial conversations with um, Andrea Wools, Andrea Calder, Calder at the time, and Peter Keane, and seeing them at Manchester Met University, and it was so infectious the conversation. But I also remember different support teams where we're hungry and we're open and then we become more and more closed don't want to mess about with this too much we don't want to change it because we know if we follow that pattern it probably leads to success and it it almost requires a you know problem uh, a failure uh, a loss to disrupt that again uh, in some ways yeah uh- and you need to ideally move before that loss or create the loss in a situation yeah. where it's acceptable to the end goals. So don't fail at the world championships, fail in a training session or fail in a, in a smaller competition where it's, it's not quite so important. I think the other thing is people, there's multiple things to pick up there, but I think people struggle with being questioned uh, about their decisions. It's, it sometimes feels like an offense to them to say, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And just constantly he asks why, why, why to get to that kind of more base understanding. And kids do it all the time. They love asking questions and adults are like, oh, just keep quiet, stop asking this, this and this. But they're so inquisitive. And I think we lose that at some point and just trying to keep that inquisitive mindset throughout and to constantly ask those questions. Because if you don't, then you, you are just going to stagnate because you'll then just revert to type and just continue doing the same old thing. And you're not going to continue to progress and someone else might be someone else might be asking those awkward questions that you feel, Oh, maybe I don't know that person well enough. Maybe we don't have a good enough rapport for me to wonder why they're doing this or how they're doing that. So we just kind of go back into our shells and it's more of a, a culture thing than it is an actual problem with the system. It's just not having that confidence and to, to do it rather than making that the status quo and being happy to, to ask questions. We, we quite literally bought, bought all those, those people in we were talking about. So Medi and Kurt was a prime example. He, we, um, I think he just he emailed WhatsApp asking some some time trial related question, and I spotted in his email signature that he was a PhD researcher at Loughborough. I was like, 
you're going to be really smart with loads of good ideas. Let's get you in. And just asked so many questions. It was like three or four hours he came around for a coffee and just sat on the sofa. And by the end, he was like dripping with sweat, like, guys, I've never, never been questioned like this before. <laughs> That's good. Um, I'm glad. I, I, occasionally, well, I used to ride with Kurt before he, he moved off and uh, then moved back up north. But um, I'm glad to hear that you made him sweat because I could never do that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, for us, it was so such a great experience because you rarely, or at least we hadn't had these opportunities to ask such deep questions of somebody who had actually thoroughly understood it and understood the limitations of it and would happily put his hand up and say, I don't know on that. This is what I do know. And these are like the things that need to be researched and why. And yeah, sometimes they're dead ends, but actually sometimes they spark ideas of, okay, well, can we research that? Can we go in the labs and test that on ourselves? And there were so many people keen to do that. Lewis Goff was was one, and we kind of turned him from this, uh, he was doing the usual thing, studying an effect of, of how well, sodium bicarb worked. And we we're like, well, actually, we want to understand how that works in competition. So what happens when we do our warm-up and we have caffeine and we have carbs and we have to get off and go to the toilet and everything else that you wouldn't put into a, a properly structured scientific study? But for us, that was incredibly important. So then he went back and completely changed how he was going to do that study and just said, okay, we'll do it around 4K individual pursuit performance with the, everything that goes before it. So your normal breakfast, your normal warm-up, everything else that, that ties in with that. Because it, it might have an impact, it might not. But it meant for us that we had a practical output from his study rather than just a case of sodium bicarb works, you should probably take it in this kind of dose this, this far out. It was unique to each person and just little things like that but might not have been a massive benefit it might have found us a tenth of a second or two tenths of a second but plenty of races where we're pretty close on on that kind of performance level that they do make a difference and i know you're an engineer but um have a a go at the social psychology there for me because um i'm i'm interested to hear your uh perception around how you sustain that culture of questioning um, over time, is that as in in my experience, this natural rhythm of that is that it's really open to start off with, then it starts to close, and and it's something we do a lot of work with with teams to to sort of reignite that and and sustain that. But what's your sense of how you might be able to keep that philosophy going? I wouldn't say it's easy, and I, I think we went through the same. Of we had a, a bit of a close phase and. The best thing was more different people coming in, different athletes who had obviously seen what we'd said before and they came in with heaps of questions and fresh ones as well that even we hadn't thought of. And um, It needs to be, I think, structured within everything that you do. So a lot of our question and answer sessions, even within the team, so we obviously had our own, our own backgrounds and quite often new things have come up, even in the news. Let's, let's say like um, some new piece of technology has been used by an athlete, a major competition pops up on Cycling Weekly and Tipper or Johnny or Will or anybody pops up at the table going, why are they doing that? And then you sit down and you go, good question, actually. I don't know. Or it could be this or it could be that. Oh, and then it sparks this whole process off. So is this, I think... It happened quite naturally because one, we're inquisitive people, two, we love the sport, and three, we're all living together. So we had these more relaxed opportunities where everyone's guards down. It's not this formulated meeting where we're going to discuss how we keep keep progressing and how we keep asking these questions. It was a case of we're living with each other, we're riding with each other. You've got all the ups and downs of that, but you can ask those questions in a in a really chilled out manner. And I think that means it's it's a lot easier to be to be open and honest because it's just one friend asking another friend their thoughts on on a subject matter, on a piece of equipment, on a strategy, on some nutrition. 
um, and recommending things like podcasts to each other. That was a, a common thing. We've got a load of different group chats, not just within the track team, but also the road team that have, again, their own areas of expertise and interest. And suddenly it's like, oh, have you listened to this podcast on altitude training by this guy? And then you'll have a listen, it'll pop up with a load of ideas. And then suddenly you seed them to other people and you go out on a three, four, five hour zone two ride and you're chatting away about the pros and cons of it. And I think for us, we were very lucky to have that dynamic naturally within the team. Uh, it did struggle, I think, at the back end. It's the third season, our 2019-2020, where I think because maybe that was led by me asking and answering a lot of the questions because they they viewed me as this sort of team principal where I had so many other things on my plate. I struggled to probably be as uh, thorough as I would have liked to have been and had previously been on all those questions because more questions started coming. I had less time more of the things on my plates, suddenly plates are spinning and dropping. And you think, well, it matters more that I get the flights booked for this competition than it does that I do the research on this really interesting question that Will's brought to me. And I regret that in a way, but there's only a finite amount of time in the day and days in the week. And um, I look back and think there's a lot of things we could have done different and better because fortunately COVID's given us all a lot of time to sit and think. And that was one of the reasons I wrote a book to take a step back and reflect on the past few years and and trying to still that into some, some uh, beneficial thoughts for others to use. And at the same time thought, well, yeah, I wish I'd done this a bit differently. I wish I'd done that a bit differently. I wish, I wish we hadn't taken on quite so many partners and just focused on a bit more of a a tight area because it might've been more beneficial in the long term to just develop skin suits or just develop wheels or, something like that, rather than trying to do 10 different projects and just go, we'll find a way to do it. We'll get it done because fortunately, yeah, you do run out of time. Yeah. Okay. So you've, you've sort of half answered my next question, which is, I suppose a little bit more into the engineering mentality of sorting ideas and unpacking an event, profiling your profiles against that and matching to see where the gap might be. But um, I suppose, and certainly from, I've been I've been the wrong end of this, as in as a, as a scientist, I've said, what about this? What about this? What about the other? And I think for a coach, that's all right up until a point, and then it can get annoying, um, where actually it's a, a, a really important responsibility for somebody in support to filter that. To, I'm, I'm going to cut this idea. I'm going to review it. I'm going to cut it. I'm going to log it. I'm going to let you know I've looked at it, but I'm not going to promote it. And, but now I've got sort of signal to noise ratio being improved that here, I'm going to press this idea because I think this is really important. And this has now moved up the chart. I think we should put energy, resource, effort and income uh, attached to this as opposed to as just, as you say, spinning plates and dropping loads. How did you start to rationalize that? How do you start to sort of get on top of that particular principle? So there's multiple areas, I think, to that. Um, in the first instance, it was trying to understand the event in first principles so you know what what is important and how important. So for us, it was really quite simple, especially nowadays with power meters and speed sensors and everything else, that you can break a team pursuit down into literally power going in and where your losses go on, on the way out. So you've got the biggest ones. You've got CDA, CRR, drivetrain efficiency. So how airy you are, how efficient your tyres are, how efficient your drivetrain is and then mass is a little bit important but you can largely ignore it for more intensive purposes so then once you know 
the relative importance of things and you can measure them objectively. So we know we can measure all three of those variables with, with a reasonable degree of precision and accuracy. Uh, it's then talking about, yeah, well, where do we see the low hanging fruit and trying to, to get, get an idea of how sensitive each of those variables are to different changes. So we know just from our own testing that it's the rider position is very sensitive. Skin suits are sensitive. Helmets are sensitive. But things like, if we go into smaller details, there's, everything is sensitive to it depending on where you are in the sport and, and, and how far you're trying to go forward. But for example, changing like the profile of the back of a saddle, probably irrelevant might change how you sit on it a little bit, but from an aero perspective, it doesn't really matter. So it's a case of understanding where we think we should focus our effort based on our current understanding and knowledge of what's sensitive and what isn't. Uh, and what we have available as well easily. So tyres, in the first instance, you buy what's available. We actually then kicked off a development cycle with uh, a tyre manufacturer that actually proved pretty, uh, not actually all that fruitful. Um, it was time-consuming, uh, and we didn't really find much benefit, really. Uh, and that was more of a reflection, I think, on how efficient tyres have got and that larger manufacturers seem to have a, a stranglehold on that uh, in a good way, I think, actually, that you've got very consistent and high-performing tyres. But from there, it was a case of, okay, where do we focus our effort? What do we want to look at? Is it rider positions? Is it skin suit development? Is it air extensions? Is it cockpits? Is it cranks? And then going, okay, well, we're likely to find this amount of gain, and it's probably going to take about this amount of time. So rank that on basically time gain to effort and then focus on the top ones. There was a few of the factors that came into play. Obviously budget is not limitless and nor is, nor is time. Uh, and then what partners could we partner with? So instead of the usual, okay, we'll go out and buy A, B and C. It was a case of, okay, we think we want to develop X, Y, and Z. So this company could be interested in that, or they already make something similar. Let's go to them and say, let's go on this journey together. We want to make, I mean, a really good example loads of examples actually all, all over the bike but a really good one in the first instance is our wheels we knew that there was some gains to be had in wheels and in profiles we went to a british manufacturer walker brothers and said look we know you design the wheels in this way if you change them in this manner then we can test all the different profiles without much overhead from your end we can tell you what we want to test you can produce them we'll do the testing you've got all the numbers to show they're faster we're happy because we end up with the fastest wheels we then go and race we get all the results as well so you're in this winning situation where you get free r&d free test results and free results at the end of it and then they've got a product they can take to market and, and be incredibly successful and it was and i think that that process we applied pretty much across the bike uh for, for the whole year or for every single year i think we we obviously went further and further up the tree of, of fruit and things got harder and harder to find and ended up significantly more individualized. Skin suits was was a big one. Um, in our final year, especially, we we worked alongside Vortec, who are a company down at Silverstone with Hoob, and we did um, so much skin suit development to the point where every single rider had not just a bespoke skin suit fit, but had specific fabrics and all manner of different differences across, across the suit because simply put aerodynamics are individual and we just needed to optimize on that basis. And it was so time consuming that unless you're an Olympic track cycling team, you'd probably never undertake it, but it was a case of we've picked all the other fruit. We, we can't really find much elsewhere. So actually that was pretty high up on the whole effort to, to benefit um, ranking. Um, I do think we developed a few blind spots throughout that entire process over the years. There's a few things in the first instance we cast aside and said, no, we don't think there's anything in that. And then since then, the last 18 months, I've had the opportunity to step back, reassess a few of them, and I've gone, damn, we definitely missed, missed some lower-hanging pieces here, there, and everywhere. Uh, Can you give us a few so, examples, or is that, is that still 
to be cashed uh, in on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I get yeah. One example I can probably give uh, was was crank set aerodynamics and what goes into making a fast crank set. So in the first instance, we were thinking primarily it's stiffness and you want a nice clean aerodynamic surface and there wasn't much more to it. We didn't think much on U factor. We didn't think much on crank length adjustability. Uh, so that's one that, yeah, especially the last 18 months I've, I've dug into a lot more over multiple athletes. And that's another benefit of, of working with the Danish Federation instead of just four guys, you've got a whole federation's worth of athletes and under 23s and juniors that you can basically experiment on because they're happy to come in and error test and get some benefits and you can go, okay, well, what happens if we do all manner of stuff that you normally wouldn't do? What happens if you go really long and crank length or really short or change the Q factor drastically? And how does that interact with their, their, uh, their body? Because they, they might be really tall and skinny or they have, might have really large feet and you see trends across all of it because you've got this, this big cohort that you can dig into, which in some ways is a benefit, in some ways is really frustrating because it makes you realise quite how individual all of these things are. And then when you go back to the big squad who are off to Tokyo, then suddenly you've got a lot of work to do with a lot of athletes who are going to the Olympics who don't have quite so much time as some 18-year-old kid who's who's on his trajectory for LA 2028. And you've got to do all this individual optimization. Um, by understanding that, at least we knew we had to do it and we could have mm. then put a plan in place rather than getting to the Olympics, finding out afterwards, oh, we should have actually just had different everything on every rider. We knew to do that. It was yeah, a bit, a bit of a long-winded way to get there. So can I just, I'm just curious now, um, is that on the basis that, that an aerodynamic or aerodynamics around a crank set, is that based on the similar sort of idea that um, about aero socks, i.e. that part of the body is moving pretty quickly? Um, so... That or it has, for example, on a uh, hundred meter sprinter, the foot is the thing that moves the fastest. Uh, in that sense, I think it's a multitude of factors. Um, frustratingly, that yeah, there's there's pedaling dynamics and they vary. It's at power and it's well, yeah, power, torque, speed. So if you're fatigued as well, they might be differently. So you might pedal toe down or toe up if you're more fatigued or you're putting more power out or less mm-hmm. power out, and then everything is speed sensitive at the same time. So you might be trying to optimize around a team pursuit that the Olympics are going to ride at 70 kilometers an hour. So you figure out their Reynolds number and then you realize, yeah, we can't error test at that speed. How do you replicate that meaningfully? And if you were to go into the wind tunnel, you, you can't ride at 700 watts in the correct position in the wind tunnel, pedaling the right cadence, et cetera, because the dynamics are different, not least when you then start to think about the fact that your angles and pitch angles aren't the same in a wind tunnel as they are in a velodrome. And you've got all these compounding factors that frustrate I guess frustrate engineers and then someone just goes but does it matter and in some cases yes in some cases no is the frustrating thing that yes we found some good gains on some athletes and on others not so and I don't truly know the answer to all of that yet it's it's on our checklist of things to do going forward after after Tokyo to try and dig into more detail and that's what's I think you've been really quite nice as an engineer that the more we test, the more we dig into it, the more we understand we don't really know a huge amount about exactly what's going on in interacting and just presents more opportunity though, because if we've got this far off what we know already, then we might be able to really take it a step further in Paris. All right. Sorry, I, I got drawn in then and now you've... Sorry, yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, <laughs> and if I get my head out of some of the detail then, um, I suppose the big principle here... It's not about scurrying around and doing lots of stuff, um, which I think actually a lot of people misinterpret the idea of 
of marginal gains in that sense because you end up, as you say, stretching yourself too too thinly. Um, this this idea that you've framed within the book around well, the very the the very title start with the end in mind or at the end in mind uh, of working your way back and. I mean, it resonated very strongly when I first saw that you'd written it from the point of view that I think that a lot of people think of sports science about going off and doing research projects. Oh, it'd be interesting to test that, be interesting to test this. Whereas applied sports science, I think much more closely aligns to engineering in the sense that our job isn't to test different types of bridges. It's to build the best bridge for that situation. We want a bridge. <laughs> okay, let's let's try and make a bridge. <laughs> uh, here's what we think is the best situation, as opposed to right. We're going to go and and just explore different types of bridges. And so, um, so that in itself as a guiding principle, you've um, really captured nicely in the book. Tell, tell me what motivated you to start writing. COVID, really? Oh, I actually, I take a step back from that. Um, James Spackman, my literary agent, is a king truck cyclist, and he dropped us a message and said, "I know you guys are travelling all around the world. Do you want a load of free books to read?" I was like, "Yes, <laughs> love a good book." Uh, so he fired a load in, which I think was intentional. He thought it'd be a good story to tell, and then yeah, when COVID all came around, it was a great opportunity to put pen to paper. So uh, it was more about. I think a lot of people originally wanted us to tell the sort of story of the team and sort of chronological format of we train like this and then we went to this race and this race and this race and that. Okay. Some people would be interesting. For me, it was kind of that's been told. You can you can go on any website and find the results from a race and follow us on Twitter and Instagram, whatever else, and that's all fine. But it was more about telling the the things behind the scenes of how we went about what we did because it's that's hard to to get across in even in, in a podcast if you were to sit down for an hour and go through every kind of detail it's, it's it's you can you end up on all sort of rabbit holes and actually to sit down and put pen to paper and, and distill that down was i think quite just a nice experience for me to to think about and even my teammates uh, to then sort of get questioned on what they thought because things that happened two or three years ago you kind of view back in your own vision and what they experienced might have been a whole lot different uh, so that that was kind of the motivation, really. Uh, the the whole process to to start at the end, as it were, was just I think natural to to an engineer to to look at the the demands of the event. Simple as that. And I think that was always the approach. We we knew what we needed to do. It was just a case of figuring out how we do that. Uh, and that, same with with Johnny and with with Charlie and with Tipper. We we all had that engineering or scientific mindset. And I think people view science as like a collection of knowledge. You go on PubMed and you get some knowledge. That's that's science. It's not. It's that. It's a way of thinking about how you go about something. That's that's what science really is. Uh, so just having that that mindset in everything you do. And from an engineer's perspective, I always like distilling it down into nice, simple units of yeah, watts or frontal area or efficiencies, what rather than wishy-washy stuff that that cycling sometimes been renowned for. I guess of there's all manner of random metrics that have come up of VAM and this and that and the other. And you need to target if you want to win the tour, you need this VAM. And it's like, well, actually, no, you need this mass, this CDA, this CRR, this power. And depending on tactics and execution, you can really break it down into much more actionable metrics, things that you can actually measure and actually improve. And it's understanding the ones that you can measure because anything else that you measure that doesn't really impact directly on performance is pretty irrelevant and probably quite distracting to your to your end goal. And it's 
far too easy in the modern world to measure all manner of things with you know, smart watches and whatever else. And if it, if it doesn't give you anything actionable, then what's the point? I think uh, Johnny was a was a great person for that within the team. He is skeptical of technology to say the least, especially things like uh, yeah, smart watches and sleep trackers and body temperature sensors in a good way not in a just put them in the bin but in a genuine let's let's approach this scientifically what do they what do they do how do they do it uh and how does that actually benefit us in the long run because for example if you were to get a a whoop membership for a year for four guys on a team pursuit that's quite an expense that's basically one sixtieth of our budget and if it doesn't actually translate to performance at the end of it, then it's, it's a waste of time if you can't do anything meaningful with the data. Whereas spending that thousand pounds on track aero testing or a wind tunnel session or a power meter or a no-show aero meter, whatever it might be, there's better ways to spend it. And it, that kind of comes back to that ranking system of where you're spending your time and your effort, because there's no point flooding yourself with all different manner of metrics. Largely, they don't really tie to the end goal of riding a whereas it was a 353 back then. Mm. There's a phrase in the, in the book um, where you're interested or you're, you're being careful to sort of separate the results from the process. Uh, uh, I think the phrase was, was how did you get there as opposed to where are you at? Um, what was the methodology? What was the thinking or what was the, the, the um the practice that you used and I, and I think that's a similar sort of discerning question that, that I think a lot of people struggle to separate and particularly those that are successful as we've sort of alluded to when when you've yeah I remember having a conversation with an Olympic champion of um of saying oh you, you should have done this or this we should have done that in a debrief and they said oh, I won a gold medal <laughs> and it's difficult to it's difficult to sort of broach that conversation well yeah I suppose you did but um and and as you say you know you could chuck any everything at, at these different the, these different ideas sleep monitors as, as an example where actually the, the chances of you getting the wrong information uh, is relatively high and actually that could send you in the wrong direction and the, the net gain from a an additive technology like that uh, you have to be quite discerning uh, in terms of the value add as you're as you're starting to collect some of these ideas together and i think it depends on the person for things like sleep tracking for example if you're already a good sleeper then why mess with it if you, if you don't believe it's a, a bottleneck whereas a good example with, with jacob with tipper that he is a bad sleeper. He knows he's a bad sleeper. And it's not so much that the sleep tracker tells him he's a bad sleeper. It, it just holds him accountable because he knows yeah. he sees that number and he goes, didn't sleep very well. I know I need to sort that. I know it was bad last night. We're going to get to bed early tonight. And he was renowned for, yeah, his, his poor recovery and poor sleep. And for him, that was a really, really useful tool. Um, but yeah, to, to jump into the whole process over goal, uh, mm. I think that was something that I got frustrated with when, I spoke to, I mean, across so many sports where you'd come in and you have different ideas or ways of doing things or just, just questioning, just the usual Socratic method, just asking these open-ended questions and drilling down. They go, well, why does it matter? We won Olympic gold or we won the world champs or we went faster than you. I was like, well, whether you did or didn't doesn't really justify the means. It's like you want to optimize the process, not just optimize or achieve the end goal. Okay, everyone wants to achieve great results, but if you're 
doing things wrong along the way, then who's to say, well, you definitely can be better. Uh, and I think for us, it was a, a bit of a no-brainer to just focus more on, on the process side of things, or at least for myself personally, it was easier to be successful on the things within your control rather than, yeah, pin your, I guess, everything, your morale, your uh, value as an athlete on whether you ride a certain time at the end. And again, coming back to the objectivity, if, if we broke down the team pursuit into powers at each position and drag coefficients and we can hit those numbers in training, then we can be pretty confident that we'll achieve the time that we want to do when, when competition rolls around. And if something goes wrong, then that's down to your execution and not you to, to blame the process. Um, maybe it's just down to poor modeling with me picking the wrong what's the CDA target versus what people might achieve. And that's just down to trying to make some good assumptions and guesses towards where the nations are in the trajectory. Um, but that was actually a super useful metric for us. What's the CDA was, and it still is, the, the gold standard method for, for us analyzing and comparing athlete to athlete because it doesn't it takes out power meter variance because you calculate your CDA from the power meter as well as your power. So we were literally reporting this for every single effort, for every training on a half-lap basis. So you can see, uh, he did five laps at three and a half thousand watts of CDA and he only did three or he picked it up at the back end because his watts of CDA went up. Then sometimes you go, oh, but your power went down, so you've got more aero. What are you doing at the back end of that turn that made you get more aero? You get all these really interesting insights just by having these metrics to focus on the process and not be worried about what comes out at the end, which for you in the team pursuit is literally how fast you ride. You actually you control the controllables and ignore the end goal and hope that the process is on the way uh, are what you think they should be. Yeah, and I think the the critical aspect of that is that that I think a lot of people will forget that I'm keen to get your thoughts on is the it's having a clean way of assessing the result afterwards so it's not just in the lead up in that sense of I think a lot of people will do that hindsight bias or they'll they'll start to all that glitters is gold narrative of we tried this that and the other and therefore, it must have all worked, as opposed to having a, um, a st- I suppose, a decent review and debrief method. Is that something that you instilled in the team as well? Yeah, I think it's something that we all wanted, to be honest. Uh, we obviously knew other nations were doing analysis in different ways and have a, had a bit of insight into that, but then also just ran with the idea in that we, we can measure all these different great things and how can we present them and um, what metrics can we create for ourselves? And yeah, to go back to the what's the CDA one, I, I still think that that was one that other nations didn't really jump on and maybe still haven't now. Or maybe I'm giving the game away on that, but it was such a, a useful one because it ties both both sides together. It ties the energy in and the energy out and gives you a, a nice, clean, uh, useful metric. And they were always, it was, so we, we'd run a team pursuit session. It might be a Wednesday afternoon and we've been having to dodge around some vets on the session because we couldn't afford a private track time block. Um, and we finish and we run back home and we'll see you want to eat and put your feet up and recover. And all I've got is everyone like, you got the graphs done yet? Have you got the graphs done yet? Have you got the graphs done yet? So it's downloading all the data and processing. And that was something that was for me a, a big project just to, to streamline that process because it became such an overhead. But you could see how how important it was and that the guys pinned their value then on a metric that really tied heavily with performance uh, that quite simply did their training work or their, their change of helmet or change of whatever over the past week, two weeks since the last session, they could see how they'd moved on in a, in a meaningful way because it was pretty simple. We, we did that in training. 
if what's the CDA went up or your turn length went up at the same target value, then we went faster. Um, and that's just simple, simple maths. It's not complex by, by any stretch. And it was nice and easy for the guys to look at and absorb. And they could then look at each other's as well. It wasn't like we were hiding any of the data from anybody. It was all one big group chat. It was the riders. It was all the, the support staff that helped us and Medi and Steve and yeah, they, they all went in and everything was was open and people would discuss and we, we had a good feedback system as well. So literally just um, a Google sheet where you went in and discussed each effort after it was, how did you feel? How did it go for you? Um, and what general feedback do you have? And just type it on in. Um, simple as that. It meant everyone could see what everyone else thought of the session. Everyone could see what everyone else did in the session. We had all the videos available. So it kind of tied it all together quite nicely. Um, so even though we were this small budget team living out of a student house, we had quite a quite a really optimized system for performance analysis and to really pull apart what everyone was doing in every effort, uh, which made yes everything a lot simpler. We we could train to that. We could select riders based on that. It was all quite clear. We didn't have too many selection issues that I know is a, is a big issue in, in team pursuit for nations that could. If you didn't have those metrics, it was a case of, oh, you did better in this effort or worse in that effort, or you got dropped here or you kicked through or your line wasn't good or whatever might be held against you as an athlete. For us, it was it was quite simple. We set out that that was the metric we were pretty much governed by uh, unless something else was drastically wrong. So you were, you know, let's say, terribly inconsistent in the line you rode, which might be held against you to, to say, well, it's it was harder behind you. But then we had another metric for that as well. We, we could see your variance of speed. We could see your variance of torque application. And we could see how efficient riders were drafting behind you. So we could say, well, if you're on the front, it's effectively 5% harder for man two, three, and four versus if someone else is on the front. And then that's another metric. You can compare one to another. So it was literally a draft speed. How much did your air speed reduce at each position? So we could say, ah, oh, well, it at man two, sorry, man three or man four, you might be at 27 or 28k an hour, but he's at 32. So he's drafting much better than you. What's going on? How's that happening? Look at the video, compare between athletes, have a discussion. What what are you doing? What are you feeling on the bike? How are you responding to changes in the line, changes in pace? Uh, and just have those discussions as athlete to athlete and not have that coach in the middle deciding all these things. It was just more democratic, I guess. Okay, so I'm listening to you and I'm kind of um, hearing the specific tactics and the mechanics of of the the substance and technical aspect of the performance. But I'm, uh, I've got this sort of, uh, I'm drawn to an area that I was delighted that you wrote about in the book, so particularly on the back end, about the, diff- I guess, the way in which the team ran. And so... I'm looking at simple abilities such as listening, uh, listening to people around you uh, as opposed to telling people or just shouting at people or, or as you alluded to, maybe an autocratic decision-making process. Um, and then I'm also reading aspects about the attitude, people bringing almost like a consultant attitude to the team as opposed to job retention attitude. I won't rock the boat too much. I'll just keep things steady. I'll curb my thoughts and input because I, I want to sustain my contract. Um, what are your sort of, what are your big lessons from how the team needs to run? Because there's a lot about uh, team dynamics that you allude to. 
That's a good question. There's there's multiple levels to it and multiple people who are, if you call them accountable or responsible for the culture, it wasn't just one thing set by an autocratic leader. I think it was quite a fluid dynamic thing that changed um, over the, the few years. But I think there was, I think primarily I would say it was underpinned by the enjoyment of the sport. And I know that sounds like quite simplistic everyone enjoys sport but it's actually just truly actually just enjoying what you're doing of knowing you, you want to be there because it's fun and making sessions fun making training fun making living together fun making going on these awesome adventures all around the world as a team fun and I think that sometimes gets lost in high performance sport you see athletes struggling not enjoying it and even to the point of, of mental health issues where they they don't feel they can be themselves they don't feel they can have laughing a joke and I know there's a time and a place for it we weren't exactly going into these team pursuit efforts cracking jokes and and riding with a it's all over the place it was it was when when it mat when performance matters performance matters and and that's out the window but when you're back in track center between efforts you've done your analysis then there's nothing wrong with having a laugh and a joke with each other and, and enjoying the the whole nature of it and there were efforts designed for, for bringing out the the best in people in certain ways and, and Johnny structured a lot of these to help me really in some ways when he, when morale was up or morale was down, he was a good barometer for that to know who was in a good place and who wasn't. So we could um, design efforts accordingly that suit specific athletes to, to help them realize they're not going as bad as they think they are, or to conversely to, to put more stress on those who are going very, very well to make life easier on those who aren't. So there's this more harmonic um, culture consistently rather than, people realising, oh, I'm not going so well and, and we try and expose that as a weakness. It was like, no, we, we want people to get around, we want people the best from people and to to balance that accordingly. But I think, again, that was just more of a team thing that people were aware of how everyone else was doing because we were there all day, every day. It was You had to accept that your guard's down all the time. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but it's not something that particularly happens in, in team sports because you go into this performance environment for a training session and then you might be on your toes throughout for whatever reason, because you feel like you're being judged or being marked or feel like this is a key session for whatever reason, or the pressure has been put on. And then once you leave, you can relax and become your normal self. Whereas actually it was all time, all the time you're, you're kind of just yourself anyway. Um, trying to lose my track of thought a little bit on that one. <laughs> can, can I ask you though, because I, I'm still f- trying to find clarity in this area where systems evolve over time they go from this sort of disorder to without sounding like emperor palpatine order and when you've got that order and blueprint there's a system that you follow and there's confidence and probability attached to to that and then what you've described there is a much freer fluid um that democratic ability to flex and adapt to an individual's needs and individual circumstances. Um, you know, I'm almost imagining uh, a warped version of what you've just described of let's manufacture some fun um, that, that sort of creates uh, happiness in the camp. Um, I, I'm, I'm still struggling w- with this uh, as, a, as an idea myself about, I think systems will move to order, but then you have to kind of disrupt them over time, which you've described. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that disruption as well is is what helps them to move on, though, to accept that they've kind of got stuck in a rut and, and need to change. Uh, 
I presented it as if like it was all uh, all roses all the time, and it, it definitely wasn't. By any stretch, we had times where we're in each corner of the lounge screaming and shouting at each other, "You've done this, and you've not done the washing, and you were terrible in this effort." And it comes back to just being open, being honest, and friends don't always get on. Um, and we were friends, and I think that was a, a good thing for us. But um, nonetheless, the, there were hard times and times when we questioned each other and times when I felt that not everyone's pulling their weight, not doing things right. And it was just the fact of being open and honest with it and not bottling that up over the long term because that's that's not going to be a good thing for the performance. Um, I do think, again, we, we drifted towards that ordered structure in that final year where I didn't have the time say to to get involved on the same level and um there was another dynamic issue that that evolved where basically instead of four or maybe five guys suddenly you have six guys and you can only name five for a squad so not even we're in the situation of who's the starting four we're like who's the five we even enter for this race in four weeks time and that was a different dynamic that it did become toxic is definitely the wrong word because it was never toxic but it was it was tension at points within the team because they could they could feel that and it was it was a hard thing to manage and it's it, it definitely is a hard thing across all teams how how you value a rider when it's especially in a democratic session is hard whereas a coach is very easy because they just go this is what I'm judging on whether it's right or wrong and this is how I'm, I'm going to judge you and when I'm going to judge you uh, I don't agree that's the best system but equally I don't believe our system is something that could easily be employed in every NGB worldwide it there are multiple ways to to approach that performance problem and ours evolved quite naturally and was quite productive, or at least in the first instance, and then became harder and harder to manage as it grew and evolved. And we couldn't stick to the those founding principles when there's more riders, there's more races, there's more pressure. Uh, and even down to the point of efforts, if you're doing a team pursuit, you're doing four efforts, you've got six guys, how do you even structure that? And even if one sits out to do some specific efforts, can't be there for whatever reason, it's still down to five. And it was, it was hard. Um, and I don't think there was an easy answer to it. I think we did the best we could at the time to, to try and balance all that out to provide equal opportunity across them. And people were open and vocal about it. Um, Kyle was probably on the receiving end because he was always not quite at the same level as Will, who they'd both come in at the same time. And Will was just performing just a slight bit better than him at all the time. So as much as Kyle is, is a great friend and continues to be a great friend, we had to be open and honest with him and just say, look, you're not performing at the level required to be in the starting team. Like, this is what you need to do. These are all the metrics. Like, this is how we're judging people. You just simply need to improve whether that's, do you need a coach? Do you need a different coach? Do you need to do some totally other different intervention? Like, it was all there. He was he was empowered as an athlete to do what he needed to do, but at that point in time, just wasn't capable of achieving what we wanted from the athletes to sign on the start line. Yeah. And, you know, there's always a cold aspect to that, isn't there? There's, someone's going to miss out on selection. Someone's going to miss out on a medal. Mm. Um, I think it, it often goes down to having an agreement up front about how you're going to engage and, and work with each other, that you're all signed up to the kind of standards of behaviour way you talk to each other and so on um look last last question for me i i, I think that my favorite phrase and I, and I read read it and i thought why didn't i know about this um was happiness watts um so i need a bit of happiness watts in my life but i it, 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 it it'd be great if you could just um share the kind of insight behind it but for for ages uh i think part of my role as a coach or a sports scientist or a team leader is is to look after the person but also 
as much as anything from a performance point of view, as in the best prescription I might give is go to the cinema, go and get a pizza and chill out <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and change the hormonal profile uh, about not getting too wound up about what they're doing. But happiness, what's gone? Give us, give us the, the background to that. So yeah, or the concept I, uh, or the, the anecdote that I used in the book was around Rowan Dennis, who anyone who follows cycling knows he's, he's had his highs and his lows and he seems to perform wildly different depending on his, his state of mind, put simply. And his coach put it down to, to happiness was when he was happy and content, when he could see his family, when he felt he had balance between training he had to do, the family and the social events that he wanted to attend, the races he wanted to do, the racing style he wanted to embrace and the races to focus on and the equipment even that he wanted to use. And they all feature heavily in, in that whole balance of you've got this finite amount of time, these finite events, you want to squeeze everything from that and not also feel that you're missing out on your best friend's wedding and your child's first day at school or whatever it might be, because cyclists are on the road a lot. They are out and about. Um, I think we didn't feel so much that we felt left out because we were living with mates. We felt like we were a bunch of students in some ways. They were just a, a, a university hall, but with Rowan, it, it was, it was clear he would perform terribly. And then when he, he did find that harmony, that balance. He was performing incredibly well. And I think that showed last year with, with Ineos Grenadiers that he'd found happiness within that system and suddenly was performing literally at the top level across, uh, was it the Giro d'Italia where he was helping Teo Gegenhart take the win? Um, and then you kind of rewind it back 12 months and he'd had a terrible time at, uh, at Bahrain Merida, it was back then, where he'd literally, middle of the stage race, Tour de France just before the, I want to say it was stage 13 individual time trial, where he was a huge favourite as world champion, got off the bike, got in the team car and went home, which was, it was crazy. And that was just an, um, I think it was equipment, I want to say it was a skin suit that he was unhappy with, that he'd been to the wind tunnel tested and had to ride in this specific suit that was a lot slower. Um, and he said, well, what's the point? I'm world champion and I sit on the start line with a 20 watt handicap. I'm not going to win. So that was that unbalance. Uh and yeah, it's, it's finding that balance in life and, and being content with everything that you're doing and don't feel like, oh, I wish I was here. I wish I was there. I wish I was doing this race. I wish I was racing in this style. Um, and everyone will have regrets to, to varying degrees. And it's just, I think it's just trying to be aware of what you're trying to, to get from the sport and what you want to be doing day to day and to enjoy that process and not just derive your happiness from an end goal that isn't within your bounds of control to actually just say, well, I enjoy going out and riding with my mates. I enjoy... Uh, doing these kind of races. I enjoy targeting this style of time trial. I enjoy doing a team pursuit in this style with my friends. And simple as that, that that's where your, your sort of happiness comes from. And if you're happy, then you tend to perform. Uh, Johnny is a, is a great case of that. So Johnny's bipolar. And when he's down, he's down and literally struggles like it because he, uh, he can't fire anywhere near as, as powerfully as he, as he would when he's on a high. And, that ebbs and flows and competition sort of shortens that cycle. So he could be on a, on a terrible low and doing a, having a terrible session and it affects his mood. It affects everything about how he, who he is as a person. And he laughs and jokes and calls himself the chief morale officer of the team. But when he is on a high, then that is absolutely his role and it washes off on everyone else in the team. And he can do some ridiculous numbers that he would could only dream of if he was in his normal state and for him that's basically a superpower it's a bit of an advantage um but keeping him happy was very critical to the performance of the team on on race day 
Uh, I think that was the, the same across the board, but he was definitely an extreme example of that. Mm. Uh, I found it a really powerful section in the book, actually, um, just this just this idea and this discrimination between the two two aspects or t- two stages of a, a, a cyclist's career that they might struggle with when they first get on the team and then when they've got had children. And, and I think that just speaks to stage, potentially age, but but also the, the level of challenge when there might be a middle bit where you can just tuck into it. You know, you don't have you don't have to prove yourself. You you haven't got other as many as responsibilities back at home, and so you're able to give that that particular dial full bore. But to to get the other dials in order, I think um, is critical, and it, and it speaks to probably a much more sophisticated way, and a, a probably a uh, a much more compassionate way about how we support athletes in at different different stages in their career. Yeah, the compassionate side as well, I think, is one that's often overlooked within NGBs. And that's why athletes have, have had blow ups and struggles, because at least in, in well-developed systems that don't recognize that and coaches who maybe don't have the best rapport with athletes don't have that insight into their lives and to understand everything else that's going on. And athletes can bury it and see that as a weakness that they're like, look, I, I really can't come to this training session because I've got to go and do this, that and the other. And you feel like you're being held accountable you're, you're being judged and when when selection comes around oh you're you're going to be the reserve rider because you had to skip that training session six months ago and i'm sorry but that's the way it is and i think athletes are really worried about putting a foot wrong when when being viewed within those kind of systems um and it can be pretty pretty destructive i think um i don't want to name names and point fingers but I, i've definitely seen and experienced that with with athletes that i know of and it it looks it's career growing pretty pretty much because they can't do what they want to do and in the it cuts puts them short in the long term because they don't have that long term balance that they need to to sustain a career well into their thirties or even beyond. So yeah, if you want longevity, then you need to be happy because you spend a, a big chunk of your life on these projects, golden projects on careers. Then you want to be happy and content in everything that you do and sure that you're not missing out on other stuff because you'll only live to to regret and resent those decisions. Hmm. brilliant dan I, I really appreciate your um insights i think that you are striking out as a really important presence in in sport and and sport and performance and how we actually go about what we do and i think you raise so many so many critical questions that that we should be willing to to ask of ourselves and, and review about how we're we're creating performance and it's a brilliant book i'd recommend it to to anybody so thank you so much dan no, I thoroughly appreciate the time to chat. It's, it's always enjoyable to, to dig into these concepts in a bit more detail and, yeah, a bit more into the background behind um, how they came about. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. You can follow Dan on Twitter at DanBiggles22 or take a look at his website, shopforwhats.co.uk. You can get some bonus content from me at YouTube. So take a look at the link below in the show notes. I won't describe the YouTube link. It's too complicated. I'm also on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and support underscore champs. And we're on LinkedIn and Instagram. Do give us a follow. Follow.